Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Certified Hospice and Palliative Care Registered Nurse and Educator for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Today's stories from the field are going to be from Connie Dolan, HPNA's Director of Professional Practice and a Nurse Practitioner. Thank you, Connie, for joining us today, and we look forward to hearing your story. Thank you. I'm happy to be here today on this inaugural session. So, Connie, could you please share with us a little bit about yourself? So, I am a palliative nurse practitioner. I have been in hospice and palliative care my whole career. Um, I came to this field because I was interested in social justice, um, and after thoughtful consideration, I um, decided that I wanted to go into nursing, particularly in advanced practice nursing, um, partly because it allowed me flexibility and really a lot of opportunities to make changes in people's lives. So um, I entered a progressive nursing program, and at that point I wanted to be a women's health NP. Um, but after a year or so, um, I really liked being with a mixed population and really thought about working with oncology patients because there were so many issues. And amazingly, in my program, I was required to take a course on death and dying, which was pretty uh, eye-opening and also um, made me think a lot about um, existential and spiritual aspects of nursing. And then I was required to have a year-long hospice practicum. And so I was really exposed to a lot of patients, um, particularly at that time where cancer care didn't have a lot of cure, um, who were being given a diagnosis and there wasn't a lot of opportunities for treatment. Um, and in my program, I wrote about the decision-making for women in breast cancer of whether to have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy and what were the images of, um, for them afterward of their body and their self-worth. Um, so this all really helped distill for me this whole patient experience, um, patients having physical, psychological, spiritual, emotional aspects to their care. Um, and then at that point, I really thought about grief and loss issues for patients and families, and I flipped my job and took a full-time hospice position and became clinical director and did per diem at surgical oncology, um, and so really helped develop an inner-city hospice, um, which at that time was pretty novel, um, a lot of considerations to think about of the population not having a lot of resources, safety going out in the middle of the night, um, just really um, all the pieces about doing hospice well. And then I um, moved back to Massachusetts where I started one of the pioneer academic medical programs in palliative care where I was for a long time, but really thinking about what do we do really amazing care for patients who know they're dying? What does it mean for the patients who aren't dying, who have serious illness that really deserve this um, comprehensive care? So. That was a really important philosophical statement for me to move from hospice to palliative care side of things and to think about what you do in an academic hospital that has a lot of resources, but also trying to start a movement across the country to get more people to embrace that. And then stepped back to look at doing more community work, and I now am in a community hospital with a very small palliative care program working with um, 
some hospices, Massachusetts is not a certificate of need state, so we have a lot more hospices than the population probably requires. Um, and I'm doing work um, in terms of community program development within my state for the Department of Public Health um, to really think about what does community-based palliative care look like. So that's about who I am and all the things that I've done. You know, I find it interesting when you had said your initial attraction to looking at hospice was that you had a strong interest in social justice. And I would like to hear what you feel about social determinants of health and where they're intersecting with hospice and palliative care in today's environment. So that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, social determinants of care um, affect our patients more than we even consider. Um, And I think with patients, if you're really entering into patient-centered care as a partnership, there's so much more to where the patient is considering what their issue is to the treatment than sometimes people just look at their insurance. But I think, you know, in terms of the conversations of where people live, what their resources are, what their ethnicity is, what their culture is, what their um, uh, religious background plays such a big difference into the types of treatments they may or may not want, but also in terms of their economic status and even with hospice and palliative care that we can think of using these designer drugs or high-tech sorts of things, but are we um, having the conversation with patients about what their insurance coverage is or is not? Um, What are the ramifications? Are we picking treatments that they're going to have to decide whether to pick up their prescriptions or use gas to come back to their appointment or paying rent? Um, And also thinking about um, in this time, you know, sometimes pharmacological is not the first thing we should be really thinking about. You know, are there non-pharmacological types of interventions that we can be pulling in that will be much more community building for them. Um, And I think um, really tapping into that, like faith-based communities, physical therapy, um, music therapy, integrative therapies that people might feel better about than just taking medications. Um, And so I think in hospice and palliative care, we've got to really pay attention more to that than just what their insurance coverage is. Thank you for sharing that with us. I have a question, Connie, um, that I feel like is always a difficult question to ask, and I'm sure a difficult question to answer. But at the end of the day, what is it that you find the most difficult about working within this career? Um, you know, I think that there, the part about this career is really that you understand pretty quickly what's important in life. Um, That, you know, the worst thing that can happen to people is dying. And so how do you back up from that? Um, I think for me, the the side effect of that is um, I go pretty deep with everybody. I'm so used to having to go to the, the, to the really important places quickly with my patients and talking about the real issues that sometimes with friends or family or people that I'm just getting to know, um, I don't do that waltz pretty well of getting to the kind of the superficial getting to know. I go a little bit too deep, and I think that's probably a challenge. I think probably when I was younger, um, you know, really thinking about how I was going to take care of myself, knowing at that time, and it's not as common now, that at, when I started this, most of my patients died within a year or two. 
And so what was going to be my mechanism for sustainability and resiliency? I think as my career has gone along and as care of and technology has come along, you know, some of my patients are with me for a long time. I've taken care of ALS patients for seven, eight years. I've taken care of heart failure patients for four years. So there's a different part of the grief and loss. And I think, you know, the other harder part is, um, I think a maturity of growing up as a person and as a nurse, that this is not about my story. This is about the patient's story. My journey with them is to guide them and reflect. Ultimately, they have to live with their decision and what I might want is totally different. And I have to be able to disassociate myself of inserting that this is about my writing their story. And I think the hard part for me sometimes is getting other professionals to kind of pull back and have some objectivity about understanding that, particularly where I work now, which is a very strong Hispanic population, and I'm doing family meetings with 10 people, and there's a whole religious component, and I have to respect that. Um, and I think sometimes it's like saying, okay, at the end of the day, have I left the patient a little bit better than when I entered that room? And better might be they trust us more, they've had time to vent, um, they understand what they're going through. It's not necessarily about always the pain medicines or something like that, but that connection that they feel like they were heard for that time. Well, as a juxtaposition to that, what do you consider the most rewarding component of your career? Mm. Where do you find that? You know, I, and you know me well, um, am a spirit of the law person and not a real rules person. And I think in palliative care, we have to think about being very creative and thinking beyond the boundaries. And so when somebody tells me no, that's an invitation for me to start thinking creatively. So I think about you know, the patients that I have sent home in an ACLS ambulance so that we could do event withdrawal at home. Um, I think about the patients that I got back to South America um, so that they could die with their family, or the patient that I got back to Russia with meds in tow um, so that they would be able to be comfortable. So I think it's really, you know, when you have a lot of resources, it's easy, and that's very different, but it's looking at the challenging cases and thinking, okay, how are we going to do this? And the people who are isolated and maybe live in a, a housing situation that we might be a little surprised by if they're a hoarder or you know they're just very eccentric respecting that that's their way of life and we're I don't say the guest because they haven't invited invite us in we're a visitor and we have to kind of figure out how do we think about um, you know what what we can do for them and so I like some of those challenging ones where you have to step back and think and get everybody to stop going on this you know, care plan that this is what everybody does, stop the cookie cutter approach and say, no, we're going to make a new recipe and we're going to figure this out. Um, might not work and that's okay. Um, and that's where I think the creativity is, is really helpful for me. Um, and when I come home at the end of the day, it's like, okay, have I just, have I helped people think a little differently? So what's the most difficult question you've been asked by a patient or family? Um, 
so I know people are probably thinking that it would be, you know, um, am I going to die or what would you do? Um, I think it's harder. The harder questions for me personally um, is when people say to me, um, you're not God. How do you know this? And um, that's an invitation in so many ways of um, what they think I'm doing, um, but also a reflection of um, medical care perhaps being a bit more arrogant than we should be. Um, and so how do we talk about the common patterns we've seen um, happen with patients and families, but know that patients are individuals and um, they do amazing things. I think that's what holds me dear in this work is that I have been amazed by the human spirit. I've been amazed by the work that patients do um, psychologically, spiritually, and families. I don't think we give families enough credit for the work that they do in this process. And and yet without them, a lot of times we can't do the things that we would like because there's not enough support system. Um, so I think it's more those questions about how do I know or um, you know, how can I foresee the future? And I really can't. I'm just using my nursing judgment and my years of experience to kind of give a possible scenario um, that they can either accept or reject. And I have to be okay with that. So I would like if you could share with us a patient that stands out in your career as a nurse practitioner in palliative care that you'll always remember and why. <laughs> what can you teach us about that patient? What could their legacy be? Uh, well, I actually have two patients. Um, one was a young man who was a truck driver, and he was 34 years old. And he really had felt like he hadn't done enough in his life, and he was going to go back to school. And he got diagnosed with head and neck cancer, metastatic. And I'm, I'm allowed to use his name, but I'll make up a name anyway. Mark um, you know, was just a really a good person, solid, down to earth. And I knew this young man was going to have to be really sick to ever come into the hospital. You know, he came to his clinic visits and everything, but this, this was not going to go well. And so um, I got a call that Mark had been admitted to the hospital, and my mind went, oh boy, this is bad. This is really bad. And I went up to the floor, and he was in respiratory distress. If he had been a different type of patient, he would have been in the ICU. But we'd had that conversation, and he didn't want to go there. But he was suffering, and the nurse had not called me. And I was livid. I, was, I just could not understand that she had let him be this short of breath. And so I had a conversation with him, and... Um, to this day, it's really painful to think about that. What he said to me was um, he felt he had not been a very good son to his mom. And he really was ashamed of um, he hadn't done enough. And my heart broke for him, um, partly because his mom, I couldn't, I was sitting there thinking, I'm sure your mom doesn't think this, um, and trying to help him. And I said, you know, I, I think let's have a conversation. Your mom doesn't want you to suffer. And um, I think that she knows that you're really trying to turn your life around. Um, and let's go from there. And I said, would you let me treat your dysmia? And he said, I, 
I haven't talked to you about this, but you know, my dad, parents were divorced and I haven't seen my dad and I, I want to make sure he comes. And I'm like, okay, when is, where does he live and when is he coming? And he said, well, he lives in the South and he'll be up. And I'm like, okay. So we had a conversation and he let me just treat his dyspnea a bit. And so um, the next day I set up a plan for the night and I said, do not let him get in short of breath. I will come into the hospital. We're not going to send him to the ICU, but I cannot find him again. And so I found him and I um, dealt with that later. But I walked in and his father was there and his father was sitting on the corner of the room and, and he was on the opposite corner. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This is what we waited for. Um, and so I looked at Mark and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm not doing well. And I realized he was dying. And um, so I said, can we make you comfortable? Have you said what you needed to say to your dad? And he said, yeah. And so just in those moments, he was transitioning. And so I got on one side of him and his mom got on the other side and he died in his arms. And um, it was one of those moments that I think as a parent and as a nurse, and I was so glad I was there and his mom and I held him for 10 minutes. The room was absolutely quiet. Um, I was so trying to just hold him and, my, and, and then the mom literally and figuratively and then I asked her if it was okay for me to leave and she said yes and I was in my heart really angry that the father never touched him or hugged him and I walked out of the room and I started sobbing um, and the nurses said to me Connie why are you sad you do this all the time I was like I do this all the time but these, these are very poignant moments um, you know, this is life or death, and this is a mom, and this could have been my son. And, um, and so I, there was a lot about that of um, really understanding what people need when, and when they want it and the surprising things that people need to do um, at that point. Um, so that was kind of the poignant one. Um, so with Mark, what would you want Mark's legacy to be for the nurses that are coming into this career of hospice and palliative nursing? I think, you know, the, the lesson that we talked a lot about was um, that we have palliative care urgencies, dyspnea being one, that doesn't need to be treated in the ICU, but needs high-level, exquisite pain management to the degree of before you'd send them to the ICU. And that you don't just say, oh, they're, the, they're a palliative patient, they're gonna die anyway. That is not acceptable. Um, families witness that and carry that for the rest of their lives. And luckily that mother was unbelievable and she has given me permission um, to talk about Mark's story. And there's a lot, uh, there's a case study that we're working on. But I think of, um, this is why we need palliative care upstream in the hospital, um, that the exquisite pain and symptom management is a skill set. Um, some of it should be part of nursing, because primary palliative care is part of nursing, but some of it is um, thinking, would you want your family member to be like that? And if the answer is no, then we've really got to pay attention to not letting families suffer like that as well as patients suffer. So Connie, what message would you like to share with nurses that are working in hospice and palliative care and those that are working outside of the specialty of hospice and palliative care? 
I think the most important message is that really all of nursing has palliative care in it. Palliative care is the essential part of our practice considering modern nursing was based on care of dying soldiers. And I think nurses have forgotten that in the whole shift to technology. And so all nurses practice primary palliative care skills. Some are better than others. Some decide to go on to really focus and have a practice in hospice and palliative care. But that really part of our practice, no matter where we are, is being empathetic and that we are journeying with these patients across diagnosis to death because that's when we're seeing them um, and really thinking about how do we change the culture so that we can have palliative care be a part of all of our health care. It's just good health care um, because at some point all of us are going to have a serious diagnosis. We don't have to be in palliative care the whole time and we're certainly not going to be in hospice. But this whole continuum of care, of listening, asking questions, patient-centered care, not clinician-centered care, and that families do matter even in spite of autonomy, um, that that's the ties that we as humans have, um, whether it's a chosen family or biological family. Um, and I think as nurses, sometimes we forget. And that I think is really sad when you see people just focusing on the machines or focusing um, not on the person in front of them. You brought up a point about listening. And when you read articles about palliative nursing in a hospice, you, you see a lot of referencing to reflective listening and listening. Could you share with us a bit about that? You know, it's funny because I think that is one of our challenges when we are, quote, listening, because a lot of times people are multitasking and they're not really present. And by present, I mean turning off your beeper or putting it on vibrate. Um, not having people interrupt you, not necessarily thinking out what you're gonna say next, but really ask, listening to the question that the patient is asking and thinking about what is the underlying part about that question before we answer. Because sometimes you see people get into A, wrote answers, B, they know best rather than really hearing from the patient if they have any thoughts about it, sometimes people don't. Um, and I think, you know, it's exhausting. If you really listen to people intently um, during the day, you should be tired at the end of the day because you actually had to engage in that listening. And I think the other challenge is that um, of a younger generation in nurses who are very tech savvy and we need to learn a lot from them. However, that face-to-face -face communication skills is not something that they're as comfortable with. They've done everything on social media and you can't have a patient by, a conversation by texting um, because there's so much to the choice of words, the tone, the facial expression, um, the um, other parts of just how people communicate, um, even in their gestures, that you have to see in order to understand where they're coming from. Um, so I think that to me, I love some of that part of communication because I feel like I'm walking into a play. I don't know what's happened in the first and second act. I've got to figure out the characters. I've got to figure out what the whole purpose of the play is and what all of that is. And I think of it as a puzzle for, for me to kind of figure out by the end of the day. Sometimes I don't, but um, 
that kind of brings a little bit of joy for me of like, okay, this is a person. They have a story, they have a history, and I want to kind of figure that out. So in your role as Director of Professional Practice for HPNA, how do you get to support that vision of figuring that out? Mm, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think some of it is what we want to do with HPNA of helping people provide the skills and helping them think about what are some of the questions to ask, really open-ended questions, really thinking of getting beyond the black and white that um, a lot of times we shouldn't have an answer. We should have to pause and reflect. Um, and, but I also think it's really maintaining my own clinical practice so that I remember what it's like to be on the front line, that I remember that um, patients and families are coming in from all different uh, experiences um, and different settings. Um, and I remember what can happen when people have maybe burnt out um, and not as compassionate as they could be. And so um, that is, I think, helpful for me because since I am coming into it differently, I have a different energy that I can bring into it sometimes and unlock a different piece because it's just a new person and um, maybe just a different way. That's not to say that I fix everything. It's just saying being there in a different way. And I love that. I mean, the joy of going to clinical practice is the patient I don't necessarily love the charting and the documentation and figuring all that. It's like, if I could sit and do the interview part and just do all that, that's the joy. And again, I go back to what I said before. I don't have to have done that much. If I've just made a connection, that is a successful day. Where do you see the future of palliative nursing? (laughs) Um, Again, a great question. So I have this vision that I would like to see palliative care start in the community with any of us who have primary care provider, be it a women's health provider, be it you know mental health provider, that it's starting because as humans, we're gonna have health issues. And that we've so ingrained advanced care planning and thinking about this and who our family is, that we have this social network in the community of clinical providers and social service providers that we get to stay in our community and that palliative care doesn't start as a crisis in the hospital and that we've figured out with each community what are the unique aspects that can kind of help support the patients and families there and so that it becomes not an emergency that it's a continuation of this care and that we relabel custodial care as person care, um, and that we don't have to work within the confines of a home health benefit or a hospice benefit. And, you know, in our country, we have done that to ourselves. Other countries don't have this delineation between hospice and palliative care because they don't have this insurance benefit that we do. And that it just really is this continuum. And if we can achieve that and help nurses understand that, whether they practice in dermatology, in the ED, OBGYN, patients are going to die, whether they're children, older adults, or whatever. And and we can be part of that. We don't have to necessarily always think about a specialist because we've pushed palliative care and nursing concepts into nursing practice and nurses feel more comfortable. And so we only need specialty palliative nurses and hospice nurses for difficult cases. That's my vision, that it becomes so upstream that we almost don't know it's there. 
Um, I think that will take a while to get there, but I think it's really worth a while to have people value it and and really remember that the one common thing we share in humanity is that to live is to die. And so we will all die at some point. And the question is when and how, and who's going to help us in that journey, and who do we want to help us? Um, so I really want some good nurses who are going to listen to me and um, respect who my family is and, um, and want to engage with me about what we need, not what they want to do for me. Is there any questions or things that you would like to share that I haven't thought to ask you today for those listening? You know, for nurses listening to this, it's really sometimes it's so important for us to pause and think about our practice. And why are we in practice? Who are we in practice for? Um, because um, it really is, yes, it's of service, but making sure that it's not only our service that's of service for the patients and families. And I think also with this part about the work that we do in hospice and palliative care, that we have to be gentle on ourselves, that we will have good days and we will have bad days. We're human um, and that's okay. Um, we will make mistakes, um, but that it's really important to have a trusted colleague doesn't matter what discipline but I think it's good to have at least one in nursing and one in another discipline that we can do reflective work about things that go well or things that didn't go well with somebody who will tell us the truth they won't just say oh you did fine but that you can say you know I'm thinking about this and I'm wondering here's what happened here's what I did and I think you know one of I feel that I really had a gift in two people that I had that sometimes they would say, you know, Connie, you did all the right things. This just had to be this way. And other times would say, you know, here's a place where you blew it. Um, so maybe next time think about that. And that, when we can be reflective on our practice that way, it just helps us be better clinicians and understand that, you know, if I have a family member who's sick and I'm caring for them or somebody who's dying, it's going to impact my clinical work. And that's okay, but just recognizing that. Because I think sometimes we set ourselves up to be overachievers because we're nurses, task-focused that we have to fix, and that you know we are sort of um, on automatic uh, um, pilot, and that's just not the way of the real world. And that I think the joy in my mind of um, my career has been um, really, uh, you know, coming into this and as a hospice nurse, I was black and white. I knew what was right or wrong to it's shades of gray. And, um, I don't necessarily know what the color will be. And I have to figure out that negotiation part. And that is really important. Um, because then that makes it be, um, a place to enter. So I think all those parts about thinking about our practice and and who we are and where we are in stage of our lives and our career just helps us be better nurses and makes us be more empathetic and compassionate. Thank you, Connie, for sharing your story today with us. And this will conclude our podcast. We wish to thank Connie Dolan, Director of Professional Practice for HPNA, for joining us, as well as thank all of y'all out there in the community that took the time to listen in. For further information about this podcast or additional learning resources, please go to advancingexpertcare.org backslash podcast corner. Thank you. <laughs>